to see, babe, it's not that hard. Hey, Winnie. Three went out. So how long do I wait to call? About a day. Tomorrow. <clears throat> Tomorrow, then a day. Yeah. So two days. Yeah, I guess you could call it that. Definitely. Two days. Two days is like industry standard. You know, I used to wait two days to call anybody, but now it's like everyone in town waits two days. So I think three days is kind of money. What do you think? Yeah, well, but two's enough not to look anxious. Yeah, two's enough not to look anxious, but I think three days is kind of money. Yeah, you know, but you know why? Maybe I'll wait three weeks. How's that? And tell her I was cleaning out my wallet and I just happened to run into her number. <laughs> then ask her where you met her. Yeah, I'll ask her where I met her. I don't remember. What does she look like? And then I'll ask if we fucked. Is that, would that be <laughs> tea? Would that be the money? You know what? Ha ha ha, Mike. Laugh all you want. But if you call too soon, you might scare off a nice baby who's ready to party. Well, how long are you guys going to wait to call your babies? Six, Six days. everybody welcome back i am super excited about tonight's guest and tonight's movie we're actually going to stay in the mid 90s we did 94 last month and now we're doing 1996 we're doing swingers directed by doug lehman and my guest is uh jason zolan jason i have to admit something to you before i formally introduce you i'm ashamed here's what i'm ashamed about i'm ashamed that i've lived in la for four years and i have never been to the dresden (laughs) Have you been? I have not. So we're both ashamed. Yes. I mean, how long have you been living here for? Uh, my entire life. I, I think uh, it took me 30 years to hike the Hollywood sign. So baby steps, right? It was funny. I was talking to my brother not that long ago. He wants to come out here at some point this year and you know do all the LA stuff, right? And I remember in his text, he said, you know, I want to do a studio tour or, or two, but he's like, I definitely want to hit the Dresden. And and I, I'm, it's sad for me that I've been living out here now for some, so many years. Granted, COVID was part of it, so I could use that as an excuse, but have yet to go there. So maybe you and I, let's uh, let's make a plan and celebrate this episode, and we're going to celebrate it at the Dresden. Is that I a like deal? It. It's about time, definitely. Jason Zolan, welcome. We are finally doing this episode, and I think I think I owe you an apology. Yeah. Here's what it is. So keep me honest on this, because I think this is how this went down. This episode took shape. We were at the end of a very long table. And I want to say this was around the holidays of 2022. We were at Koi. Uh-huh. Is that right? I think we were at Koi. It was, uh, it was an Essence NBC Universal Yahoo dinner. Yep. Uh, end of 2022. And you and I were at the one end of a very long table. Yep. And that was the very first time that you and I ever met each other, right? So I'm not the best with memory. Like I would never, okay. I would never have someone use my memory as gospel. However, I keep going back and forth of the first time us meeting being at Mastro's or was it Koi? The genesis of doing this pod and swingers definitely happened at the end of the table at Koi. But was our first meeting there or was it at Mastro's? Because at Mastro's, we had the conversation about how I want to be smoking a cigar, but I don't like the act of smoking. And I want to enjoy oysters, but I don't like them. And there's a lot of cigars in this movie 
And it was also my birthday. So name me another executive at a competing company that would ever have dinner with you on their birthday, by the way. But listen, I, there's no other executive <laughs> at any other media company. And I remember when you told us about the birthday, I think we all made a big deal about it. We did. Individual butter cakes were served. We were up in Malibu. Correct. That's where we were. That might have been the first meeting, but the genesis of this was definitely coy. I remember like it was yesterday. I have a pretty good bullshit meter on people. Like I just know like immediately it, when I meet somebody for the first time, if I like this person or if I don't like this person, uh-huh. if this person's going to be solid, you know? And I remember when you and I sat down, we just, we were talking as if we had known each other for 10 years. And um, I think we had talked about the pod a little bit, maybe at that point, yep. but um, it was at Koi, you know, another time where we actually really started talking about our interests and our passions. And, and, and you basically said, look, I want to be on this show and I want swingers. And that's what I'm apologizing about. Cause I don't know why, it took as long as it did. I wanted you on sooner than this. When we locked down swingers, I think I had already had like the first half of 2023 pretty mapped out. So it was just like, it was just like I had to get it in the queue. Yeah. And unfortunately I just, it took a while. Are you upset with me? No, knowing you, you're highly prepped. I I figured as much, but uh, you know, it makes it all the more sweeter. Tell us about yourself. What does everybody need to know about Jason? Uh, Well, I mean, like you said, uh, I work in ad tech, digital advertising. I've been doing that the better part of a couple of decades at this point, which is crazy to say. Uh, I'm I'm a husband uh, to my beautiful wife, Courtney. Uh, We'll be 15 years. We'll be celebrating this March. So, you know, we give it the old college try. Uh, I'm a dad. I have a 10 year old. She's the, the light of my life as everyone would say, best thing that ever happened to me. Certainly challenging at times, right? Other than that, I'm a, I'm a drummer. Um, I love photography. I, I'm, I'm very much into taking photos. Uh, I'm a dough maker, sourdough, pizza, whatever you want with uh, flour, water, and salt. I'm your guy. And then I think I'm just a, a, a quintessential kind of geek. You know, I'll, I'll build a server. Uh, I still play video games. I still love them. Uh, stuff like that. You know, I'm always, always trying to be learning. You built a server. I did. Wow. Why not? You didn't mention that at Koi. <laughs> trying to get you to spend money. So servers aren't, aren't, aren't the topic. My last guest, Jason Wagenheim, the East End Cowboy, makes his own barbecue sauce, which yeah. he discussed on the show. And I knew that you were into pizza. I was actually thinking about the conversation we had that night. This is what I wrote down. I said, the thing I recall from that evening is that you're a musician. You play the drums. It's not your day job, of course, but you're into music in a big way. You have a drum kit sitting behind you as we speak and uh-huh. a guitar on the wall. Um, and that you're always looking for the perfect pizza. Jason, I remember. I listen to stuff. I pay attention. <laughs> I, I'm actually pretty impressed. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> That's It's incredible. I give you mad props. You said Swingers about as fast as Wagenheim said Pulp Fiction. Like literally <laughs> two seconds, Swingers came out of your mouth. It's from 1996. I think I'm a bit older than you. So I was in my mid-20s when this movie came out. But um, we're going to break it down tonight. We both have a, a huge amount of love for this film, as do many other people. Oh, yeah. But why Swingers? Why was that your first choice? You know... I was thinking about this a little bit. Anytime someone says, hey, what's your favorite movie? Um, There's a lot that goes into that question. But certainly part of the criteria has to be the number of times you've seen the movie. I'm not saying Swingers is my favorite movie, but I have seen Swingers so many times. Uh, It was just the first thing that sort of popped in my head. It became a language for me and and my group of friends. Last week, I referenced, uh, you know, you got to act like you don't need the shit and they give you the shit for free. Like it's just, it just rolls <laughs> off the tongue naturally. And it always did. Um, I'm also a person who, you know, I, I love my family, but I consider my friends absolutely family. Like they are equal in my eyes. Uh, and I identify with Mike so much um, just being, you know, that, that brotherly love. I think this film did a really good job telling the story of two friends who are brothers 
who love each other. And it was just the first thing that popped into my head. I have the same thought about this movie when I thought about it and stopped and did the research and really just sort of revisited the film. And it's, it's in many ways, it's ahead of its time in um, beating a lot of other comedies that came after that, that kind of celebrated that same notion of, of two close male friends. Yeah. And I think this movie beat a lot of other movies, the Apatow movies that come to mind. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Talk to me a little bit about where you were in life when this movie you know, entered your life, right? I saw it in the theater. I'm going to talk about how I saw it in a minute, but I want you to go first. But did you see it theatrically? Did you see it for the first time on video or DVD? Like, where were you? What were you doing? I'm so jealous that you saw this in the movie theater. So as you mentioned, I didn't bring it up, right? You did, Dennis. Uh, you're a little bit older than I am. So this movie comes out. I'm 15 years old. It's not really on my radar. Um, it, you know, I sort of missed the kind of uh, the the launch and let's call it a failure for lack of a better term. And then sort of the the move into cult classic of this movie. But my origin story, I think, is part of the reason I love it so much. So um, when I graduate high school, I immediately moved out. I had four roommates. I worked at In-N-Out Burger. Uh, and I you know, I had a little bit of money because In-N-Out paid well, and our apartment was split four ways. So I went out and I bought a DVD player. And it was like the new thing at the time. I had this brand new DVD player. And I went out and I bought three DVDs immediately. So the first one was an Adam Sandler like variety pack. So it was Happy Gilmore. It was Billy Madison and it was Big Daddy. Uh, just classic, right? I would do any of those with you. The second one was Dazed and Confused. And like Jason called Dibs, uh, I think it was uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yep. I'm calling Dibs on Dazed and Confused. Let's, I'm just going to put that out there right now. It's yours, duly noted. <laughs> and the third DVD was Swingers. And so one of my roommates um, had a brother who was about three, four years older than us. And he had been talking about this movie quite a bit. So, you know, he's of drinking age at the time and he knows what the clubs are in L.A. And he was actually kind of into swing and definitely ska. So was I. I think everyone should have a ska phase at least once in their life. <laughs> I did remember seeing the the giant poster at Blockbuster or somewhere like that when those still existed. And I was like, all right, you know, I don't need to do all the, the funny nonsense movies uh, like Billy Madison and whatnot. So went out and bought it, had never seen it before, didn't know a ton about it. And we would just watch this thing on repeat in our apartment constantly. When you have that many roommates, you're just always doing something. So we're drinking, we're playing video games, we're watching swingers. And we're just the one-liners literally became our language, like I said. And it's just, it, it kind of became the the movie that we watched before we would go out and try to pick up girls as like a pump us up kind of thing. So that's that's kind of my origin story of the movie. I, I loved it so much. I love your origin story. I'm going to talk about how I first saw Swingers, okay? I'm 25, and I'm working in D.C. I was working at an agency. I've referenced this job previously. Um, our clients at the time, we worked in an entertainment division of a, of a larger D.C. agency, but we handled 20th Century Fox. We handled MGM, Paramount Pictures. So our job was to really promote movies in the, in the DC, Baltimore, Richmond area. So everything from PR and publicity to promotions to media, we sort of did it all for the studios in those areas. My two coworkers, two really good friends of mine, Nikki Newman and Ruth Metzger. Ruth is going to be on soon, but we had heard that they were shooting the Robert Zemeckis, Jodie Foster film contact. Of course that movie came out. I want to say like summer of, of 97, yeah. right? So this is fall of 96 when swingers came out. And we had heard that they were going to be filming part of Contact in downtown D.C. And they were looking for extras. So I think Nikki came into my office one day. She's like, what are your thoughts about us taking the day off tomorrow? And let's go down to the mall and let's <laughs> let's go down there and let's see if we can get in this movie. 
And like, you know, Ruth's a big movie person like I am. And I'm like, yeah, let, let, let's do that. I'm like, can we, can we get the day off? Can like, can we do that? It was a relatively small team. Like we didn't have a lot of people. And if you take out Nikki and Ruth and Dennis out of the equation of our department, not a lot is going to get done sure. if we're not there. <laughs> the next day we all, we meet up, we take the Metro down to the mall and it was a freezing cold morning. And there we were, we had to like fill up applications and paperwork and show our IDs and, and all sorts of stuff. But we were actually in the movie contact. I was going to say, tell me there's a screen grab of you in this movie. No screen grab. I'm, I'm standing out on the mall with many, many other people, uh-huh. like hundreds of people. And then, they, and then I think they used like blue screen to add in like, to make it look like thousands when there was only just maybe a couple of hundred, but they made it seem like it was much bigger. But there's a scene at the very end of the movie where Matthew McConaughey takes Jodie Foster by the hand and they walk out of the Capitol and they walk down these steps. It's in the movie. Yep. You'll see it in the movie. Um, and then there's like kind of like a reaction shot of the crowd when they walk out and you see all these people sort of cheering and so forth. I'm one of those many, many people you know, basically cheering on Jodie Foster after she gave her big testimony at the end. I'm not a big fan of Contact. I think the movie's okay. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it. Uh, it's been a long time, so I couldn't even tell you. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. You know, if it's on, I'll watch it for a little bit. It's not Zemeckis's best. So that was the beginning of the day. Okay, so we that's like a that's a good day right Great there. Day. Right, that's all in the morning. And and Jason, we actually got paid. I'm in that movie for the rest of time. <laughs> we got a we got a check. From Warner Brothers. I think Warner Brothers made that movie. We got a check for like, I want to say a hundred bucks, $125 for three hours of standing around and not really doing much of anything and and drinking hot chocolate. So anyway, that was the morning. And then like we had already taken the day off. So like now we're not going to go back to the office because we'll be busted. Uh Right. So we had to commit to the day. So like, I think it was Nikki's idea. She's like, why don't we all go get some Starbucks and let's go see swingers. And that's what we did. So we caught like an early afternoon matinee of swingers on somewhere near DuPont circle, I think. And that was the very first time I had seen that movie. And now I had heard about it, it had already been playing for a little while. And I felt like I was the only guy that had not seen swingers yet. So I was super excited to finally go see it, but that's how I saw it. It was, it was like mid nineties and contact in the morning swingers in the afternoon. Isn't that a day? It's a pretty good day. I love that. Her name is Nikki. That's a nice tie into the movie, but uh, I'm, I'm curious too, <laughs> how, because I have no recollection of, of like the release of this movie and the, the fervor and the, you know, the, the crowd, the audience, like what people are thinking of it. I've got no recollection of that. How was it? Was it, it sounds like something that you knew was out and you guys were aware of and you're like, yeah, let's go see that movie. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I remember in the mid nineties and, you know, we talked a little bit about Harvey Weinstein in the last episode about Pulp Fiction, but like, obviously that was a huge movie for, for Miramax and, you know, swingers was too. And, and this was the time when I think swingers had some other things in release. I think, you know, Goodwill hunting was coming soon and sling blade was maybe already out for, for Miramax. So Miramax was definitely like this up and coming indie film distributor. And like, you sort of knew who they were and they, and, but they were making, these small movies and you knew that they were small and you know they did pulp they did reservoir dogs and i, I kind of just remember seeing the newspaper ads and this was at a time before there was no social media oh, yeah. right i mean we, we were still faxing at this job <laughs> there was no email so it was the newspaper and the radio and i guess the tv was how you heard about movies yeah. or if you read magazines and whatnot but that was it so like i just remember seeing the swingers ads in the washington post and it just seemed like the movie never left town. Now we're going to get into this in a minute because it actually didn't do that yeah. well theatrically. And, and you touched on Blockbuster and that was a big part of why this movie was successful. We'll get, we'll get into that in a few minutes, but I just remember it getting like good reviews. I remember some of the people I worked with had already seen it. People were quoting it already. Not a lot, but yeah. you, it was this thing that was out and everybody's like, you need to see swingers. And I remember that that day that we saw it, 
I think the three of us maybe were the only people in the theater. It had been out for a little while at that point, but maybe, I don't know, 10 people in the theater. So like, it wasn't like I watched it with a big crowd and everybody was laughing at the entire time. Yeah. That was not this experience. This was very low key, but I found myself laughing a nice. lot when I was watching it. And, and at that point I was, I was hooked like you. I, when it came out on DVD, I certainly got it. I, it's, it's one of those movies that as, as I've watched it over time, um, it's just gotten better. It's just gotten better and better. And even like when I watched it to prepare for this conversation with you, I still pick up on things totally. from this movie that I probably haven't even seen. Do you feel the same? Not only do I agree that as soon as I saw this movie, I was so mad it took me so long to see it because it had been out for so long. But then, yeah, I watched it uh, in preparation for this and things are popping out of me. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why has it been 10 years since I've seen this movie? I love how I saw this movie. I still have this, this weird feeling about contact. Every time I come across it on cable, <laughs> I'm like, hey, that's the movie that I was in. It was just this completely random thing. And your your recall in all of these episodes of of where you were when you first saw the film is, is so impressive. It's like, you know, if you saw it in the movie theater, you know where you were. This one, obviously contact has a special part but you just you just seem to know where you were the first time you saw a lot of movies it's really impressive but but we all have movies like that sure. don't, don't we i mean like, you have a lot of them though <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know like i just feel like you know, if you ask me like where i was when i saw indiana jones and the temple of doom i could tell you like where i was and who i saw yeah. it with right and like i don't know i have maybe it's me like i'm a little bit of a savant like that yeah. i think and like i just have this this deep memory about when movies came out what years they came out and who i was with can't nail that for every yeah. movie, but I feel like I'm pretty damn accurate. Agreed. So you have that as well, or is that just a Dennis Kamlik? He's a freak. I thing. think it's a little bit of a, a freak thing. I could tell you where I was with Raiders of the Lost Ark, but like very few that I could actually do that with. Okay, so what if I don't want to give up on it? You don't call. I mean, you said I don't call if I wanted to give up on it. Right. So I don't call either way. Right. <laughs> so what's the difference? There is no difference right now. See, Mike, the only difference between giving up and not giving up is if you take her back when she wants to come back. But you can't do anything to make her want to come back. In fact, you can only do stuff to make her not want to come back. So the only difference is if I uh, forget about her or just pretend to forget about her. Right. Well, that sucks. Yeah, it sucks. So it's just like a retroactive decision then? I mean, I could, like, forget about her and then when she comes back, maybe I could just pretend to forget about her? Right, although probably more likely the opposite. What do you mean? I mean, at first you're going to pretend to forget about her. You'll not call her, I don't know, whatever. But then eventually you really will forget about her. Well, unless she comes back first. Mm, see, that's the thing is somehow they know not to come back until you really forget. There's the rub. There's the rub. Look, man, uh... I'm sorry, we always talk about the same thing all the time. Uh, it's just no, that, you know, no, but you, right. you know, it's just you've been there, man, and your advice really helps. Yeah. And I just, I don't know what, it, you know, Rob, you're the only one I could talk to about her. Thanks. All right, let's get into the movie. Swingers, written by John Favreau, uh, directed by Doug Lehman. Uh, it was released on October 18th, 1996, a budget of $200,000. Crazy. Jason, you're shaking your head. This movie was literally made for peanuts and it's, it's success. The production behind it, I, I, we're going to spend a little bit of time on, on the making of, of this movie because I think that's a big part of this movie's story and this movie's legacy. But, um, it was not a successful movie. This movie opened at $74,000 in the U.S. I'm sure it only opened on a few screens at the time, but it ultimately cumed four and a half million dollars in the U.S. and Canada. 
Um, obviously, that's a, an, an amazing return for a movie that only cost $200,000. But this was not a theatrical success. This movie found its, 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 its life in, in home video. And, and there's a reason why that happened. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But um, as I said earlier, Miramax had other films that came out at the time. Um, this movie sort of got lost in the shuffle, I, w- I would say. And maybe you were too young to remember that because you weren't around. I guess you didn't really remember it when it was playing theatrically. But the one thing I remember, and I would love your thoughts on this, the poster. I'm a big poster uh-huh. guy. You, you see one behind me as we speak. <laughs> I'm a bit of a collector. I don't love the Swingers one sheet. It's a poster of, I, I guess it's supposed to be Vince Vaughn. He's holding a martini, right? And the tagline is cocktails first, questions later. What do you think about that? You're in marketing. You're in media. Do you like that? It doesn't really tell you a whole lot. I, I think the the two things that stood out to me were, one, just that it was everywhere. So I saw that poster. I knew it existed. It wasn't so much the content of the poster. And the second thing is just that it was it was very bright. Like it has that sort of orange-yellow background. And not a lot of other posters yep. had that. So it did stick out. Those are the two things that jumped. But not, nothing else really uh, speaks to the movie, in my opinion, with that poster. And I think maybe that's partly the reason why this film didn't, and I'm not blaming the marketing, but I think sometimes a, a marketing plan or an ad, if it doesn't really sell the movie the right way and there's too many other things in release, it can be um, it can be hard to break out. And I think this might have been one of those films that um, the word of mouth is really what they needed. Yeah. And that was hard to nail in a trailer or a poster until the movie, you know, was seen by people. So I think that this is one of those movies that you just tell people yes. about, right? There's no way that you're walking in the swingers and you're walking out and you're not going to tell everybody that the language and the dialogue, as you just referenced, how, like how great yeah. that stuff was and how hilarious it was and just how quotable it was. So this movie had no business being the cult favorite that it is now. Agreed. I was going to say, if I'm Favreau, there's just no way this movie gets made. I would have given up a hundred times uh, having to go through <laughs> what he went through. Like he really went all out to to get this thing made, and it's it's a fun story to read after the fact because I didn't witness it. I mean, there's so many sad stories in Hollywood about good movies like this that never find their way, right? And Swingers really needed. I guess it needed all the stars to align for them to have the success that it had, but because it usually doesn't happen. But the road to success was pretty serpentine. I refer to this movie as the little engine that could. Yeah. There's a great Grantland article, a great oral history about the making of this movie, if you're really into such things, which I am. Uh, but again, it was made on a shoestring budget. Um, these guys are filming this thing in a run and gun style. I mean, Jason, they're in actual bars. They're, they're at actual locations in and around LA, actual parties in the Hollywood Hills, not staged parties, but actual parties where they brought their, their camera crew and they actually just filmed scenes at like someone's house yep. party. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, they would just uh, they would just meet someone at the party and say, "Hey, can you, can I ask? Can you ask me what kind of car that I drive?" Uh, and we'll go through the. And it's just they they film it right then and there. It's crazy, and it works. John Favreau's father gave him screenwriting software. I'm not sure if it was Final Draft or if it was something else. Favreau started writing as an exercise, according to him. What came out was Swingers, and it sounded like it came out rather quickly. Like, I think he said he wrote this thing in like two weeks. Yeah, He was doing 10, 10 pages a day for a movie of this length. That's about 10 days, maybe a little bit more. This is one of the most quoted movies of the 90s, and this is a movie that he wrote as his first screenplay. How does that come Incredible. about? Incredible. Like, that's shocking. And for me, you know, uh, Vince has been in so many other things. Obviously, John has too. But um, watching this back at the time that I took it in, you just assume Vince is improvising, let's call it half of his yep. lines. And to know that 
when you go back and read sort of that, that oral history and some other things, all of it was on the page. Favreau wrote basically all of the lines that Vin, I mean, he delivered them masterfully. However, it wasn't improvised. John wrote all of that. It's, it's crazy, like how good he was. Word for word, that what you see in Swingers was literally on the page. And to Blew your point, away. that just doesn't happen very often. Actors are given a lot of free reign. Make the character your own. Make the dialogue within reason your own. And I don't. And I'm sure Vince Vaughn did a little bit of that in this movie. Yeah. But it sounded like that was all there. Yeah, I, I'm not saying he wasn't electric, but I mean, I think about the scene where uh, they meet the waitresses and they go back, and, and Vince is going through his audition when when he was supposed to be 11. <laughs> that whole story is. I mean, again, he did it masterfully, but. John wrote that whole thing. It's it's just, it blows me away. That scene made Vince Vaughn a movie yeah. star, in my opinion. When they're in the trailer and he's talking about that audition and he's talking about 11, 11 years old and always double down, all of it. Like when you're watching that scene, you, you're just like, who is this guy? Like, I had no idea who Vince Vaughn was until I saw Swingers. Knew, I knew that he was in Rudy's. I'd recognized his face because that's how he and Favreau yeah. met. They're best friends. But like he literally hijacks every scene in this yes. movie. But that scene particularly... Don't, don't you feel like he just kind of took the movie on his shoulders and just ran away? It was so fun to watch. I mean, I'm I'm hanging on his every word as a viewer and then watching the girls hang on his every word and everybody rips up an applause. It was just, it was so well done. So this is what Favreau said about writing the script. I was just entertaining myself and really enjoying it, sort of giggling at it as I was writing it, I, but I couldn't wait to share it with my friends. More like doodles in a notebook than really saying, hey, here's my big movie. This is what uh, Vince Vaughn said before they started making this movie. He remembers talking to John Favreau about auditioning for a lot of stuff, and they just weren't seeing great material. Even the movies that were getting made, I thought, were not dialed into the time period, not really capturing real life. So I said to John, you know, it would be great if you didn't have to audition for this stuff. And that's when John went out and wrote Swingers, and he basically made the movie for them. So like he, he wrote the screenplay so they wouldn't have to audition and they, they could actually play these characters and play them masterfully, to your point. The true to life aspect of it, too. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in Southern California. I could see a lot of people who are maybe East Coast looking at this movie and thinking, ooh, so that's what L.A. is like. I had the same thought because, again, I'm not of drinking age and I don't spend a ton of time in L.A. I'm an Orange County kid and, you know, I'll, I'll catch a Dodger game, yeah. but never been to the Dresden, as we talked about. And for me to see the, the eyes of L.A. nightlife through what John did, I, I was just as captivated. Like, oh, wow, that's what life is like in Los Angeles. And it really did feel absolutely real. Favreau's agent started shopping it. And it sounded like they were getting some really good traction. This this was one of those screenplays that people were talking about. Um, a couple of companies were nibbling at it, but they all had a lot of notes. Some of them wanted Favreau to change Trent to a woman and have them not go to Vegas in the beginning of this film. And they also wanted the movie to be darker and more violent. And they also wanted him to remove all the references of money and baby. Such a mistake. <laughs> Can you think of a world where swingers doesn't have those expressions? The language that you talked about with you and your friends when you guys discovered it, right? You guys are probably quoting that movie for years. My brother and I still quote this movie. Everybody does. Can you imagine money not being in this movie? I literally cannot. I, I quote it weekly. It might not be money, but it's some quote. And to to think about Trent being a female, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? It, it's just so jarring because of what was made. And then to to have them want to go darker with it. I was trying to think, you know, what was it in the mid to late 90s that made people want this to be darker? Um, I don't know. I just... I was really blown away by that because I'm so glad that none of that, you know, John, John admitted he tried to take those notes and put them on the paper, but he just couldn't do it. And I'm so glad he didn't. 
Well, yeah, I guess if you've got these studio executives giving you the sense that they might make your movie or acquire your movie, and the, but you need to do this, this, and this, I'm glad he didn't sell the soul. Agreed. I don't even understand why they would want this movie to be violent. Same. What violence? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, where does that come from? It would <laughs> seem like to just seemingly come out of nowhere, and I don't think it would have worked, and I'm glad he stuck with it. The only possible violence in this movie is when Sue pulls the gun in the yes, parking lot. House on, of Pain. On House of Pain, right? <laughs> but beyond that, back in the 80s, I was a huge fan of NXS. Uh-huh. I love Michael Hutchins. I love, I love those guys, right? And I remember hearing about when Kick came out, yep. which was the album that just catapulted them into stardom. The A&R guy at, one, at the label at the time, when they first heard the songs delivered, when, when, they, when they finally recorded Kick, the, the guy was like, this is unsellable. Oh. This is unplayable. The station, radio stations will never play anything from this album. This album is a dud. Like it's, it's this is what they were. I told. did not know that. Wow, <laughs> that guy should be fired. I think Kick had like five number one oh, singles. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, sometimes these people they just don't get it right and they don't know what they're talking about. That's my point. Doug Lehman, the director who was up and coming at this point, I think his roommate was involved in the development of this movie with Favreau. They didn't know each other actually. Him, he, he and Favreau, but he had heard about this thing. So eventually he got brought into it. He got his hands on the screenplay, and he was the one that was actually. Able able to raise the 200,000. I think they were hoping to get more than that, but I think it was a, a lawyer friend of his father's or something like that, that he was able to track down and get and get the financing. But he never thought that this movie was going to lead anything. And this is what he says. He says, none of us were counting on this movie for anything. I didn't even tell my agent I was making swingers until I was done shooting it because I didn't want him to stop looking for a real job for me. <laughs> Classic, right? I'm actually really impressed that uh, whoever that, you know, lawyers are are doing just fine. But to put up $200,000 of your own money, fully expecting it to go nowhere is, is kind of impressive in and of itself. And I'm glad he did it. The cost of getting the film was was the biggest issue. So, I, and again, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. So I'm not a filmmaker. I know nothing about shooting film. But I guess at the time, film comes in these 1,000 foot loads, right? And and or Or 400 foot loads. And I guess those are fairly expensive pieces of film to acquire. So on a, on a big movie, a big studio movie, what they do is they throw away the end of the film that they don't need, uh, like the last couple hundred feet or so. And I guess that stuff starts to uh, accumulate. And so these guys, because they knew that that stuff would be cheap to get, this is, this is how they made Incredible. swingers. They made swingers by shooting most of the movie on these 100-foot short ends, they're called. And I guess, it, and that's the equivalent, Jason, of like a minute yep. or so. Just shooting the entire movie in one minute chunks. Can you imagine? One minute chunks. <laughs> Isn't that insane? I think someone had said uh, it, it took longer to reload the camera than it did to get the actual footage out. Like it took longer than a minute to reload the camera and then you only got a minute of footage. It's, it's insane to me. This basically means, everybody, that when they were filming Swingers, they could only film it a minute at yeah. a time. Like, you know, obviously, if there's a scene that plays out longer than a minute, they would actually have to change and put the new film in. <laughs> so you, they could only basically film it in one minute increments. Do you believe that? That's kind of hard to believe, but I kind of It's do. crazy. I mean, on one end, it's film in and of itself is harder, right? But then uh, and then to use short ends is crazy. These guys needed digital cameras so badly. I guess the camera that they were using that Doug Lehman got his hands on was apparently really loud uh-huh. and like it was i don't know what kind of camera it was but i guess it was so loud that it was being picked up on the mics right so i guess they wrapped it in like a puffy jacket <laughs> did you hear about that i did they I wrapped did. this thing in a puffy jacket just to mute the sound of the camera so that it wouldn't get picked up when they were in whatever scene shooting it that's, that's i crazy. think at certain parties they were embarrassed with uh, some of their friends of the industry looking at them with this ridiculous camera mic'd in a in a, a goose down feather jacket to muffle the sound they were just embarrassed by it. it's incredible
Unbelievable. So the movie, Jason, was supposed to end with Mikey hanging up on his ex-girlfriend um, and talking to Lorraine, which is obviously in the film. Uh, that was actually supposed to be the genuine, true ending. And then they decided to end the movie the way they did, because I guess Vince, Vince Vaughn had an experience at an airport when he was he was traveling um, where he thought someone across the, the terminal was was making a stare at him. When in fact, that person, that woman was looking at somebody else. So they decided to use that experience that actually happened to Vince Vaughn and put that in. So, you know, that's what happened to Trent when he thinks that that woman at the diner is looking at him and she's actually talking to her baby. How do you feel about those two endings? Do you feel like they got it right with what they chose or not? I, this was one of my questions for you. I, I've gone back and forth. You know, I, I think I rewatched this maybe two and a half weeks ago and I've gone back and forth, I think, every day since. I So the two things that I had forgotten about on my rewatch was one, that House of Pain actually comes back to them and they're playing hockey together. I totally forgot about that. Uh, that was a fun little surprise. And then I, I genuinely thought the movie was over when he hung up on on his ex-girlfriend and talked to the new one. Um, and then, they, and then yeah. I was like, ah, now I remember. And I don't know. I, I like the fact that it, uh, you know, it, it kind of humanizes Vince a little bit and sort of, uh, you know, Mikey finally gets one on him and that's, that's cute. But I don't know. I also could see myself being completely satisfied if they just would have cut it right there. Uh, I, I really do go back and forth, but it is a, it is a pretty touching scene. And I, I do like the fact that Mikey kind of gets gets the edge finally on Trent for once. It goes back to what you said a little while ago about this was a movie about friends, right? And that this was, and I agree with you. I don't know if this was a film about Mikey's ex-girlfriend in Jersey and his, his struggling you know, career and his struggling love life in LA. Obviously that's a big part of the story, but I, I do think at its core, this was a movie about Mike and Trent, yeah. right? I think if this was a big studio movie, if Paramount put this out or, or Fox put this out in mid nineties, I think the movie does end on the yeah. phone call. Right. And it's like, he hangs up on his ex-girlfriend. He's got Heather Graham on the other line and everything is going to be great. But because this is a movie about these two guys, and this was a movie that they got to make on their own terms because they made this independently answering to really nobody. Um, I could see why, to your point, they wanted to end it back with the friendship. Yeah. And, and again, it's great to see like the mighty Trent is, you know, not invincible. <laughs> and, he, you know, he, he, he gets taken down a peg or two, um, a little bit embarrassed. And I think that it, it works in that regard. So I actually find the ending is the, the, the real ending very satisfactory because of that. I think you talked me into it. Yeah. And I love, I love his sort of stammering at the end. Like, so, so you call, uh, so you didn't call her, you know, he's, he's trying to change the subject super quick because he embarrassed himself. It, it is very cute. It also bookends because this movie opens with Mikey and his buddy Rob at, at the diner having a conversation, which was a, a great conversation to open up this movie with, but then to end it back at the diner with Mikey and Trent, I think that's just a nice framing device. Yep. They raced for Sundance. They thought this movie had a shot at Sundance and they were running like hell to get this thing um, edited in time so they can submit it. But I guess it got um, it got rejected pretty quickly. This movie did not play the festivals. I think they were really worried about that. So I think they thought this was a movie that could play festivals. You could see why they thought that. But um, but I think I think the, that the producers were like, you know what, that's fine. We're not worried about that. This is we think this is m- more commercial than a what a quote unquote festival movie probably had a reputation of being in the mid nineties. And they thought this movie had far more commercial prospects than, than that. So they weren't too worried that they didn't make um, Sundance, but they, they also weren't right either. Cause the movie didn't really have commercial prospects, right. at least not theatrically because it didn't, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't make a, a whole lot of money. So what they decided to do, because again, they had no money. They rented this crap theater on Fairfax. Um, they did one screening. And according to these guys, they invited 490 friends 
And the remaining 10 seats were, were allocated to potential buyers, people at different studios. Um, they did this intentionally because they knew that their friends would love it. So the movie would play well. And the people that were there from a business perspective would actually have a great screening because they would see how well this movie played to a, to a packed house. Isn't that pretty clever? That that's- It's genius. And again, uh, I would have given up so far before this. And they get to, it actually reminds me of In-N-Out. I've talked about In-N-Out a few times now. But um, uh, I forget Harry, the, the original owner of In-N-Out, what he did with his first drive-thru was he had you know 12 of his friends in cars form a line in the drive-thru. So it looked popular and everyone wanted to go there. And then, and then the really? actual customers would come through. So it, it, we've come full circle. You staged it, huh? That's interesting. So one of those industry people in the theater that night was Michael Cole, who acquired films for Miramax. And that's how Miramax got involved in this movie. Um, as John Favreau says, it just destroyed yep. that night. That Meaning that the packed house with their friends, it just it played enormously well. They sold the movie to Miramax for $5 million. Favreau and his and his partners did have final cut on Swingers. And that's the version that we all got to see. John had said um, he knew when he said the backpack line right before they were going to Vegas that if, if that laugh hit, uh, the movie was off to the races. And he said when, when he said that line, the whole theater erupted in laughter and it was on. That's when he's on the phone in his apartment in yeah. the beginning of the movie, right? And he's yeah, like, yeah. All the parties and all the girls, they all suck. And I'm supposed to be happy because, I don't know, she's wearing a backpack or something. <laughs> and the whole crowd erupts in laughter. I actually remember the backpack being sort yep. of a thing. In the 90s? I, for some reason, I remember that line. And it, it, like everything in the 90s, it's starting to come back. Backpacks are back. One more thing on the behind the scenes of this movie is that, because um, again, it didn't do well theatrically. So someone from Buena Vista Home Video, you got to remember at the time, Miramax was owned by Disney. So Disney's home video department called Doug Lehman. And they basically said, we think Miramax screwed up the release of your movie. It should have done far more business theatrically than it did. It's too good to disappear. So they promised that they were going to give it a massive push on home video. And I think this is how this movie entered your life, Jason. So like you probably saw a giant poster or standee at your Blockbuster video. They flew out all the owners of Blockbuster and all of these other independent video store chains all around the country. They brought them all out to L.A. essentially for like a junket. You know, they did like a swingers themed weekend. They took them to the Dresden. They took them to some of the hot spots. They got these these video store owners to fall in love with swingers. And they basically said, like, look, you know, we need you to carry this movie in your stores. And that's what they did. So this is what Doug Lehman says. They were going to make the whole weekend swingers themed and do events at the Derby and screen swingers for all of them. Meanwhile, I got a call from MTV that I had been picked as best new filmmaker for the MTV Video Awards. That event took place right around the same time that the home video weekend happened. So suddenly you went into a video store and there'd be 20 copies of swingers like it was a big, massive movie everywhere in the country. That's what got this movie to the next yep. level. Is yeah, it? Is and it? it was that plus my friend's slightly older, cooler brother being like, y'all should watch this movie. And, and that's all it took. And here we are. Look, she didn't like me. Okay, I'm in a fool of myself. Baby, don't talk that way. You're, right. so, you're so money and you don't even know it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. So Could you not mess with me right now? Baby, we're not We're not. With don't you are like a big bear with, with, with claws and with fangs, with big man. Big fucking teeth, yeah, man. Yeah, fucking teeth on you. She's just like this little bunny. 
who's just kind of cowering in the corner, shivering. Yeah, man, just kind of, you, you know, you got these claws and you're staring at these claws, man. You're thinking to yourself with these claws, you're thinking, man, how am I supposed to kill this bunny? And you're how am I supposed it, to kill man. this you're bunny? Yeah, it. you're not hurting it. You're just kind of gently batting the bunny around. You know what I mean? And the bunny's scared, Mike. The bunny's scared of you. And you got these fucking claws and these fangs, and these fangs, man. And you're looking at your claws and you're looking at your fangs and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what to do, man. I don't know how to kill the bunny. With this, you don't know how to kill the bunny. Do you know what I mean? You're like a big bear, man. So you're not just like fucking. No, man. I'm not fucking with Honestly, you. Honestly, Mike, I'm telling you, you're money. You're so fucking money. All right, I want you to go over to that girl and I want you to get those digits. You're money. Come here a second. Listen to me. Now look at When you go up to talk to her, man, I don't want you to be the guy in the PG 13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. You're not sure where he's coming from, okay? You're a bad man. You're a bad man. You're a bad man. Bad man. Talk to me a little bit about, like, what a big deal this was for Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. I mean, I know that you saw this movie on, on DVD, so it's a, it's a little bit different than, I guess, the experience that I had when I saw it in real time theatrically. But, like, as we said, like, Vince Vaughn was sort of nobody before this movie comes out. The next day, he's Trent. And he's like this this guy that every guy was like looking up to. Vince sort of went through a little bit of a valley before kind of reinventing himself and coming back into things like old school and, and wedding crashers. Um, I, I remember Favreau a little bit more because in, in my memory, he had a bigger part in Rudy. Rudy was such a such a great movie. And then, uh, you know, he had this show on IFC, I think it was called Dinner for Five, yep. where they would just have a conversation talking about the industry. And it was really cool back then to get a little peek behind the curtain about what goes on in Hollywood. And, and John was so articulate and and clearly knew what he was talking about in a way that I just wasn't expecting. And then, you know, the, the sky's the limit for him. I mean, Elf, to to come out and just write the most amazing holiday movie in, in the sort of modern era, you know, this isn't a Christmas story, which I know you did a pot about, but like elf is so fantastic. And he did it when I don't think anyone thought it was possible to make another Christmas classic Christmas movie like that. And I was more paying attention to him at that time. And I have to admit that I did not see elf theatrically. I did not either. Missed it. Yep. I just missed it. Took me too long to watch Elf. A few years after Elf, he goes on and he directs Iron Man. No big deal. Essentially kickstarts the entire MCU, changes the way Hollywood has approached blockbuster movies since then. It all started with Iron Man, Agreed. in my opinion. I mean, obviously, there were other successful you know, comic book movies since Iron Man, but I think Iron Man was the reason that it all sort of – it was the catalyst. Yeah, I think, think you're right. Um, and then to go back to, to Vince, I, I can – in a very similar way, just call it, you know, and again, I missed that sort of gap when Swingers was released to when it caught fire a little bit. So for me, you know, in 2000, 2001, I'm watching Swingers and we're just getting into it and it's religious for us and my friend group. And then not two, three years later, Old School comes out and it's just this instant, incredible comedy and Vince is crushing it in that movie that talk about a quotable movie that is just in your zeitgeist for a few years. That movie you know, probably couldn't even get made today. But I, to me, that's when I was like, oh, man, he is really, really good, just like he was in Swingers. Yeah, same filmmaker that ended up doing the um, the Hangover yeah. movies and so forth. But yeah, like it's funny. You referenced the the late 90 thing for a minute. And I, you're right. Like, I forgot that Vince Vaughn, because basically what happened with Vince Vaughn, I mean, he all of a sudden he was getting calls from Spielberg yeah. and they wanted him to be in Jurassic Park 2, which he was in. And, and I remember him being in that reboot for Psycho. And like, he kind of... 
you know, look, I mean, fame, fame came quickly for him after he, he, he appeared in this movie for obvious reasons, but it didn't seem like he made great decisions, yeah. but nothing really hit to your point till old school. That was sort of the movie that kind of brought him back. The Vonessance. Yeah. I mean, how do you say no to, to Spielberg? Right. Uh, of course. And I, I forgot about the psycho movie. I did not see that movie admittedly. Uh, and then he did the, the Aniston one, uh, the, the breakup, or I think that's what it was called. Um, which was okay. Uh, yeah. but old school just smacked me in the face and said, wow, this is, this is a comedy. It's fantastic. When I was watching swingers again for this and, and just watching how, um, Favreau kind of commanded the role as Mikey, you know, as an actor and, and you referenced Rudy earlier and he has a good part in Rudy and like a really good actor in his own right. And that's not the path he chose. I mean, he shows up in, in his movies. He does cameos in his movies. He plays the chauffeur and Iron Man. Like he, he definitely, Still stays in front of the camera from time to time, but he is he is a filmmaker. I mean, this is the same guy that eventually turned his sights on yeah. Star Wars and made the Mandalorian. I'm like, this guy is he's sitting on top. He's he's doing very, very well. Just John Favreau. But he's a good actor. Uh, Chef is one of my favorite films. I, he did great. And the the research that he did and and the work that he put into actually making it all look believable and real. I mean, actual chefs praise that movie because of it. So Doug Lehman um, also obviously had a huge success after this movie. He did a really good indie film called Go. Go with um, the Dawson's Creek, uh, Katie Holmes. Is that Go? Katie Holmes, Timothy yes. Oliphant. Um, oh, I'll watch anything with Timothy Oliphant. Three interlocking stories. It came out maybe two, two or three years after Pulp Fiction. Again, in the late 90s, there were a lot of ripoffs of Pulp Fiction. They all hit. They were, they were a dime a dozen. Some of them weren't very good. There were a couple ones that were good. This was actually one of the better ones. It was, it was called Go. Doug Lehman directed that. And then this guy goes on to do the Jason Bourne movies. Yeah. He is a major filmmaker. He did Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. He's actually, his next film comes out in a few weeks. It's the Roadhouse Oof. reboot with Jake Gyllenhaal, which, you know, Rob Bone and I did Roadhouse last summer. Jason, let me know your thoughts on the Roadhouse remake. Are you are you all for it? You know, not? Jake Gyllenhaal, I, I thought he'd be bigger. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm I'm totally for it. Uh, I I can't wait. <laughs> that movie was so great. I loved the pot on that. Uh, I will tell you too, and I'm not going to apologize for it, Dennis. Uh, another movie that came out in 1996 is Twister, and they're making a new Twister. And I loved Twister as a kid. And again, I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, you know, special effects be damned. I loved it, uh, and I'm all for the remake as well. Look, you know my thoughts on Roadhouse. I'm a big fan of Roadhouse, big fan of Patrick Sweezy. Um, Rob Bone is actually going to come back on in a few months. We're going to do Red Dawn. Nice. I don't love the fact that they're making a another Roadhouse, but this is the way Hollywood is today. They're, they're redoing Twister as well, to your point. I'll see it. I know, I know it's going to be on Amazon Prime. It's not getting a theatrical yep. run, and apparently – Doug Lehman went apeshit about not getting a theatrical oh. run, although I guess he had agreed to it legally that when he made the deal with Amazon that he was not going to have a theatrical push. It was just going to go right to streaming. But he's, I guess he thought maybe he could change their <laughs> minds. But it does look good. I mean, I've, I've watched the trailer. I mean, I like Hall. I've always thought he's a good actor. I'll give it a shot. I'll watch it. I'm not, you know, I can't say I'm excited to see it. This is the way to approach a film like this. You know, you keep your expectations low. And if you're surprised, that's great. But you know, let's let's keep our expectations in check a little bit. Let's talk about Vince Vaughn for a minute. We touched on this a little while ago. Take me back to when you're watching this movie in your apartment with your buddies, right? You guys are burning through the DVD. You probably needed to get another one because it was getting all scratched up. Did you have the reaction of Trent that like everybody else did? Like I look, I, I remember I loved all the characters in this movie. We'll talk about them in a minute. But like 
Vince Vaughn and Trent, he'll, he'll be known as Trent forever, right? Like that'll be, you know, that's what he'll always be known as, right? And like the, the way he delivers this movie, his lines in this movie, he hijacks this movie. Did you have that feeling as a, as a 15 year old? Like, did you have like this man crush yes. on, on Vince Vaughn and swingers? Cause like I know absolutely. I uh, he could do no wrong. I mean, again, uh, notwithstanding that final, final scene, maybe, but even then, like, I'm sure he could have gone to that woman after the fact and, and closed the deal. No problem. Um, there's only one misstep from him for me. And, and Mikey agrees with me in the movie, but asking the girl for the number, tearing up the napkin. I wasn't okay with that, but uh, the guy's just absolutely electric. Again, <laughs> the, the trailer scene and watching him do that whole thing, uh, maybe my first man crush. I'd have to think about that a little bit, but certainly one of the longer ones for sure was Trent. I, I mean, I think part of it was like he was so he was so confident and assured as Trent, right? Like this is a guy like he had the high hair, like he had, he, he had a good look to him. He was wearing the, he wore the fashions really well, which we'll talk about in a second. But like he just had this vibe about him, like you wanted, you were sort of jealous of the guy, like you you, you kind of wish. You wanted to yes. be like Trent, although you knew that you weren't. I knew that I wasn't anything close to Trent when I was that age. Like I, I was never going to be a guy like him, but I also kind of wanted to have a friend yes. like him. Like it was, it was either one, right? You either wanted to be this guy or you wanted to hang out with this guy because he, he just had this this aura of yes, cool. And right? he was a good friend too. I mean, Mike is a hard guy to be around sometimes, and Trent was just always, you know, he was very consistent. He stayed with them, made sure he was okay. I, I don't want to take too much away from Livingston either because his role in this movie, that opening scene that you talked about, right, is great. And he yeah. comes over and gives them the salami in the, in the apartment and everything. So he's there too. But Trent, I mean, he's just constantly calling him, gets him out and goes to Vegas. He must have said stuffy apartment 10 times in this movie and he wants to get him out of it. Like he's a really good friend. This sort of movie, I think Swingers sort of became a lifestyle. Now, I again, not living in LA at this point in the mid nineties. So I guess this is, must have been fairly accurate as to what some of the bars and, and some of these hot clubs were like at the time. Right. But there was this whole like what I think I love about this movie is it established its own universe of L.A. and like this concept of cool. I mean, it's no no wonder that the home video people at Disney wanted to bring all these these video store people out to L.A. to experience that that concept of cool. Right. And the music, the fashions, the cocktail culture, the lingo. I mean, you and your buddies. I mean, this movie talk about a movie that comes along. And this does not happen very often where a movie has its own vocabulary. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were quoting Pulp Fiction left and right. Reservoir Dogs was like that. A lot of Tarantino was like that. But Swingers was like that. I mean, not you don't you don't quote movies no, like this. You really don't. Well, uh, a few in a lifetime. Right. I mean, the the simplest little things too, like. There's an establishing shot that shows the city. It's probably the nighttime and it's the hills. And then in the background, you just hear the first few notes of NHL 93. And for me, man, my friends and I would play the hell <laughs> out of all of those NHL games. I knew exactly what game it was. And then to get to cut to the scene where they're in a living room and they're just playing Genesis against each other and giving each other shit about it. Like it, it was just a perfect moment. And then the other one that stood out to me in terms of just like L.A. is – you know, there's eight guys going out. Every guy's got his own car. They're all driving separately to this party. And it's just like, yes, we don't take cabs because they're everything is spread out and it's too expensive. And everyone has their own car. It's very L.A. You can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. Hi, Fred. It's loud and a woman warm. I've been kicked around. This time was born. I was over right. It's okay. You may never be out of the way. You can try it. Once a stand. Yeah, I'm a big dumb man. 
it's funny. Like we got my girlfriend and I got invited to a, a holiday party last at the end of last year, and the theme was Rat Pack. And you know, Farah didn't grow up in um, the U.S. She grew up in Indonesia, so she doesn't understand what Rat Pack is. So I had to explain <laughs> it to her, and she's like, "What's a Rat Pack?" I'm like, "Wait, that's a great question. Like, I can imagine why that would be confusing for you." So I had to explain it to her. I talked about Ocean's Eleven. I talked about Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. And like this movie celebrates that whole culture, right? The way these guys are walking into these bars and these speakeasies, Hollywood nightlife, the swing music. But like, what's really interesting about it is like Rat Pack as a concept is is old school. Yeah, It's very old. Like they're going to a bar like the Dresden, which is an old school place. You got Marty and Elaine Roberts <laughs> playing, staying alive on their, on their music, right? Like they're wearing the sequent outfits. Like it's all old school. This movie is literally old school before old school became... Yeah. Cool thing. These guys were like living this lifestyle of old men. Yeah. That wasn't on my radar at all. So to watch them do it made me want to do it. And, you know, the the references to Glenn Fittich and single malt and all that. Like, I didn't know what a single malt scotch was at the time. I was 20. I couldn't afford it. But it really made you think. And it made looking at them do this made you want to go out and do it. Whether you knew what the Rat Pack was or not, you just you wanted to be them. They got the bowling shirt right on, on the outside. And then they have like the white tank top underneath yep. it. And they all wear the it. Chains. Like all of them do. And I didn't even know what those things were called. They're called yep. wallet chains. Yes, that was a style uh, probably around uh, this time, mid to early to mid 90s. Uh, I, I think I might have had a chain wallet, but I definitely had plenty of friends that had it. So it was it was certainly a thing. I remember when bowling shirts were a thing. Yeah. I mean, Jason, I will tell you, I, I have to admit it to you. I'll admit it to everybody on the pod. I am a big fan of bowling culture. Bowling culture. To tell me more. <laughs> I don't personally think Big Lebowski is the Coen Brothers' best film. I do like it, but I the bowling stuff that they have in the beginning of that movie, the way they shoot that, oh my god, it's so great when they when they, when they show like John Turturro yep. he's like cleaning his ball and he's got these little the little shimmy like. I, I love all that stuff. My brother and I went through a bowling phase right around the time that this movie came out. I remember we were we were bowling at Bowl America in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and we were hitting it like on Tuesdays or Thursdays because it was like dollar games or something like that. We had our own <laughs> shoes. I mean, we were like we were serious. And I will tell you that like I think when I retire, I'm probably gonna go back to bowling and I'll join a league when I'm like. In, this in is incredible. It's uh, <laughs> very unexpected and incredible. My my college had a uh, like four lanes. In a certain part of it, and my my roommate and I would play a few games here and there. We'd go grab a pitcher; it was probably four dollars at the time, and just play a few games of bowling. That's about as much as I got into it. But uh, you you sound committed. I'm in. I'm in for this. I remember, like in the like early thousands, I discovered this one website, and I don't remember the name of the website now. But you can actually design your own T-shirts, right? <laughs> and it was like you could like upload uh, a crappy like image, and they would print the image on your shirt, and you'd get it a week or two later. And I remember I I made a shirt once. I don't have it anymore. This was like back in like. This is like 2005. It was a shirt of a, a bowling pin and a ball. And I think it was actually two balls and a pin. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. you get where that's going. <laughs> Careful. It said Jim's Pro Shop at the top. Underneath the ball and pins, it said, we've got balls. <laughs> that's great. Great. <laughs> I'll buy one. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, um, Kingpin. Kingpin came out, that comedy. And then, you know, the, the Simpsons had a couple bowling episodes. It was around for a while. Jason, it's funny that you brought up Kingpin. So 20th Century Fox was our client at the time at that job I was telling you about. And um, they did the junket for um, they. It was it was a weird scheduling thing in the summer of I guess it was the summer of '96. It was right before this movie came out. There was um, it was a, a scheduling issue because there were three different studio movies that were all coming out at the same time. So they decided to do the junkets for these three films in Washington D.C. One of those films was Courage Under Fire 
with Denzel Washington uh-huh. and Meg Ryan, which we were working on. They did the junket for She's the One, which was the um, Ed Burns movie with Cameron Diaz and um, yep. Jennifer Aniston, right? And then they did Kingpin. <laughs> they were all in D.C. over like a three-day weekend, and we, we were working this junket. I ended up getting a bowling pin, an actual bowling pin that I still have. It's not – I don't have it in this room, but I have it, and it's got the Kingpin logo. Here. And it's been dinged up. Sure. This is 1996. This is, you know. That's incredible. I love it. <laughs> Amazing. You want to give a shout out to the club? You texted yeah. me over the weekend. <laughs> you were walking the dog and you saw an actual club. It was a it was slug bug. My, my daughter is getting into slug bugs and it, I'm kind of amazed how many I still see. Like not the new, new models, but like the old, old ones. And this particular slug bug had a club right on it. I, it's the first time I've seen one in maybe two decades. I haven't seen a club in forever. I definitely owned one. And if you owned a car in the mid late nineties and you lived in a relatively urban area, you absolutely 100%. had the club and you put it across your steering wheel. Yeah. My, my truck was green. I had a green club. They came in different colors. It was great. So let's talk about the slang from this movie. You talked about earlier with your buddies that you guys were quoting this movie left and right. Like, I mean, listen, I, I just wrote a couple of these down from memory. Like, you're so money. You don't even know it. The, the beautiful babies, the guy behind the guy. Like, was, was there one that was a particular favorite for you and your buddies? Oh, man. Like I said, I just referenced you got to act like you don't need the shit and they give you the shit for free. Um, uh, did she or did she not smile was one uh, with, with with the waitress. That was great. Um, let me I wrote some others down here. Uh, I loved when he asked her to get him the drink and then she goes to get it. And he's like, run along because I'm going to keep time. I'm going to keep timing you one Two, three. We said that constantly. Um, and he's like, he's like, you're being such an asshole to her. What are you doing? He got so pissed off. At <laughs> and then, and then she comes back. Of course, it was like the Jedi mind shit. I love when, um, when they are at the, uh, the diner at the very end. And he's, he's, he says, Hey, what are you kicking me for? You want me to ask? Or I will, ma'am, where do the high school girls hang out around here? We used to say that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it was great. Um, oh, there's so many. It was just, it was, just a constant quote all the time with this movie. I, my brother and I used to quote the Rain Man suite. We're gonna, we're gonna get the Rain Man suite. We're gonna be up, we're gonna be up to honey by midnight. And we did this Vegas trip constantly. We would drive to Vegas. I remember for my buddy um, turns twenty one. His birthday is ten days before mine, so he turned twenty one first. He waited for me, and then on my birthday we drove out to Vegas. And I mean, the amount of times that we're saying, "Hey, you think we get there by midnight? We're gonna be up five honey by midnight." Like just. On and on and on and on. It's great. I have driven to Vegas a few times because I was always like, I want to do the drive. I want to say that I did it and driving through the desert. And like, you're right. Like you, you have, when you leave for that trip, if you're driving, you're pretty excited about it. You're going to Vegas for the weekend. It's a good time. Right. And then you realize what a long ass <laughs> drive it is. And it, it shouldn't be as long as it is, but it does it take a you a while. And by like halfway through, you're like, is I love how like they show that enthusiasm in this movie at the beginning when they're leaving. He's got, he's counting his cash. He's like, I can only spend 300. I can't spend any more than that. And they're like Vegas. And then like an hour or two later, they're like, he's like Vegas baby. And they're both like totally, totally. bored. Yes. And the scenery never changes. He gets so upset that Vince doesn't have his suit on in the car four hours before they get to Vegas. It's just classic. Talk to me about your friend group, right? So you've got this movie, you've got Trent, you've got Rob, who's Ron Livingston. You got Mikey. You know, there's also the guy, Sue, who's a little bit edgy. Who, who are you, Jason? Like, which guy in that friend group are you? I am uh, Mikey, without a doubt. I have no game. 
Really? Uh, you know, I, I'm very uh, sensitive. Uh, you know, you sort of have to talk me into things sometimes. I'm 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 very careful with money at times, right? So I could totally see uh, me not wanting to bet at all, and then him giving me three chips and me just freaking out. Uh, I'm I'm very much Mikey. And to your point earlier, right? Like you're a little bit jealous of Trent, and everyone's got the friend in their group who's maybe like the the sexiest or you know the top dog, right? I was not that person. So I'm, of course, jealous of the Trent in my group. But I I very much identified with Mike. Um, it's just he is so hard to watch sometimes in this movie. It's it's agonizing. And credit to him for both writing that and then acting it on, on film. But it's funny to me because you work in a business where you deal with a lot of people for a living, right? You're, 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 you're in sales. You, you represent a major tech company and you're out there calling on people and getting business and like meeting people at Mastro's Malibu and Koi, these, these swanky spots, right? And, uh, and like biting yourself on podcasts. And like, so you're like a social dude, but like Mike is like not necessarily that guy. So you change. Yeah, over, I guess so. I mean, uh, I don't know. It, it Mike seems social, right? It 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 takes him a while to get going. Right? He's a he's a comedian. That's yeah, fair. He's he's a comedian, so he says. Uh he doesn't have West Coast representation as of yet, but yeah. I I think um like him too. Like his friends really do like him and care for him. And so uh, I don't know. Like you said before, you're a good judge of character. You can tell right away when someone's like full of shit or not. And I guess I can too. And when I have a rapport with somebody, it's super easy for me to start a conversation and get to know somebody and, and want to be involved in their interest to come on podcasts and things like that. But uh, the rest of it, man, I, I very much relate to him. I am definitely a Rob without <laughs> a doubt. I can be... I can get a little anxious like Mikey for sure, but I, and I'm definitely not a Trent and I'm not a Sue. Um, I wouldn't pull a gun <laughs> on somebody. I think Rob and I are, are pretty close. Rob is the guy that's always, he, you know, he always was tagging along and didn't say a whole lot. And, uh, and that's me. It's weird that it's weird that I run a podcast because I am not the most social yeah. person in the world. I'm really not. And yet here I am talking to people every month. It's <laughs> I don't weird. think it's a bad thing to be a Rob. He's he's like I said earlier, he's a really good friend. That that whole speech in the beginning uh, was great and, and exactly what Mike needed. And when Mike was at his absolute lowest, Rob was the guy that showed up at the door. He didn't he didn't call first. He didn't wait for permission. He just showed up and said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to help Mikey out here. He knew that his buddy yeah. was in a bad place. He was there when, when Sue yelled at yeah. him in the parking lot and he knew that he, he beat him down pretty hard. And he Would you him. ever consider taking a part as goofy? <laughs> Jeez, right? <laughs> I haven't even told my parents about goofy yet. He's like, I think they've, I think they've sort of figured it out by now, right? Boy, does it hurt when they ask. Three months ago, I was Hamlet in Off-Broadway and I was good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> There's a great quote from Favreau about the characters. He says, uh, the characters are exaggerations of aspects of all of our personalities. Vince has a lot of the charm of Trent, but he's a much different guy. And I was definitely going through a sad period of my life, but I was never a basket case like Mikey was. I definitely would leave 50 messages on a machine. So it's, it's interesting how he tried to capture a little bit of what he yeah. was going through in his own personal life when he was writing up the character. Let's talk about we, – we referenced this earlier. Why is it that Swingers doesn't get enough credit for sort of being – that first movie about how guys are trying to become men, right? Like there's this notion of like being an immature goofball, but like these guys in this movie, Mikey especially was trying to become that guy. Like he wanted to grow up. He wanted to fall in love. And like, we see this play out in a lot of other movies that came not that, not that long after this movie, but like you've got Judd Apatow, right? You got knocked up is essentially that the 40 year old virgin is essentially that 
There's a part of that in Wedding Crashes, which is another Vince Vaughn movie. But like Swingers was first, but Swingers doesn't usually get the props for being that kind of movie. But you you said that earlier at the start of this that that that's the best thing about this movie. Yeah, I criminally underrated, uh, right? It still is. Um, the only thing I can think is is that time the timing of of the release for one, but also you know um, time isn't on its side. There's there's no cell phones, and I, I don't know that people really put that much stock into something like that. But the Upatown movies are are shot better, right? They had larger budgets. They're they're filled with actors who are familiar, right? You know, Steve Corral can do no wrong. Um, so I, I think that has a lot to do with it, but um, it, it just continues to be underrated. And I, I think that it's for those who know and, and those that have experienced it, love it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think there's room for both as well. I think the legacy of this movie is based on the fact that it's, it's, it's an indie comedy, how hard it was to get made, um, the great screenplay that he wrote and like getting this thing off the ground and making this movie on their own. And I think that's why this the, the movie gets more recognition for that than I think it does for maybe the themes. And like and again, like when you've got a movie like this with the screenplay and the the dialogue and how quotable it is and all these great, great, great lines, right? I mean, like just quotable yes. through the roof. So I think it's hard to like, I guess it's hard to match that, but I do think the themes of this movie, if you stop and spend some time with it and really analyze it like we did for this episode. Um, there's a lot more going on in this movie than I think it gets credit for, probably because of yeah. all those other things. And and all and all those other things are warranted. And I'm glad it, it's known for the great quotes and whatnot. But this movie has a lot of heart, and I think that's that's something is it's kind of lost on. Yeah, and it, anytime you talk to someone who's seen the film, they have nothing but good things to say about it. It just didn't get the the audience, the broad audience that some of those other movies did. You know, call it marketing, call it what you want, but uh, I don't think that anyone. I'd be hard pressed to run into somebody who says, Oh yeah, I've seen something. I didn't like it. Like I've never heard someone say that before. I don't remember how cigars came up when we had dinner at Mastro's, but we, I do remember this. I do remember us talking about cigars. I don't know how it came up. Having watched swingers again recently, I forgot how many cigars <laughs> were in this movie. There's a lot of cigars, like Vince Vaughn smoking. Like they are, it's all over the movie. And I will admit that I went through, I'm a cigar guy. I don't smoke them regularly, but I, I do. I do have a humidor here, and I smoke occasionally, not nearly as often as I did ten years ago or twenty years ago. I did go through a phase, probably around the <laughs> late nineties, right when this movie came out, where I was smoking cigars. My brother and I would light one up on our little patio, and I loved it. I, I, I felt like I was like just like I was the guy. But you don't smoke them, right? Correct. We've established this ever it's, or no? No. Uh, so the reason that this came up is I'm going to guess at Mastro's, we probably ordered the seafood tower because that's what one does at a client dinner. Uh, and there were probably oysters <laughs> on it. And I said something to the effect of, man, when I see someone eat an oyster, they look so happy. They're having so much fun. And I want to experience that. And every time I take a bite of one, I can't stand it. The same thing with a cigar. I watched Tony Soprano smoke a cigar and I'm like, man. He looks like he's really enjoying that. My roommate is like you. He had a humidor, whatever you call it, yep. the cigar aficionado magazine on the on the counter on the coffee table. But every time I light one up, I'm just like, ah, it's something about the act of smoking. It just, I, it's not for me. Can I get you to come around? Can we can we do one? You think or no? We talked about this. I'll, I'll try them. It's not. I'm not going to not do it because you know, or it's bad for your health or whatever like that, right? I'm, I'll do it, and then I'll be like, ah, 
But didn't you like talk about that there was like a cigar place that we were that you wanted to go to? Like you and I even talked about if we did do that. I like, think you had told me about the place, and you're like, if you're gonna like one somewhere, you're gonna like it here, wherever that was. I think we're either gonna do the Dresden or we're gonna find a cigar place, and we're gonna I'm gonna get you to light one up. Dazed and confused, uh, backed by popular demand, on site at the uh, cigar store. I'm very intrigued by this idea. Very very excited about that. We're gonna have to figure it out technologically yes. with the equipment, but there's always a solution. You referenced this a little bit a, a minute ago about Mikey and how um, stressful he is to watch. It's an amazing performance in that regard. And like, sometimes I forget how good Favreau is as Mikey, but talk about how uncomfortable this movie is. It really is. Unlike most comedies, there's not many others I can think of where it's that stressful to watch. I think it's better because I so much identify with him. (laughs) The the whole Nikki thing, like even before the answering machine, the him puffing his peacock feathers at her. And then she's like, no, I know Starbucks. You asked me for an application. And he's like, no, it must've been a long time ago. Cause I got an agent. No, it was two weeks ago. <laughs> and then he goes back, you know, he, he overcomes his odds, gets the number. Uh, and then the answering machine, man, it, I forgot how painful that was to watch. He's also just by and large, a pretty miserable person to be around for most of this movie. Like I said, I, I give Trent a lot of credit for even sticking with him for so long. Uh, it's just, he's really hard to watch. There's so many different scenes that kind of come to mind about how awkward and un- uncomfortable. I mean, obviously the, 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 the movie's famous for the, for the, for the phone messages and he leaves a bunch of, a bunch of messages on a machine. And that actually, that happened in a Seinfeld episode several years earlier. Uh, George Costanza was dating somebody and she was out of town. He couldn't get a hold of her and he kept calling her and he was wondering why she wasn't calling him back. And every time he got her message, he would leave like a more and more angry <laughs> message. Um, but she thought she was, he was joking with her the whole time. So he kind of got off the hook. But the one that comes out to me is when they're at the casino table and like, and you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like he goes to the hundred dollar table, right? So first of all, like he only wants to spend 300 bucks. He's got like three bills in his wallet. And all of a sudden he's at a hundred dollar table. He's in big trouble, but he doesn't even know like how to give yes. the money to the guy. Like you always have to put the cash on the table. You can't exchange it. And like the guy's like, put it on the table, sir. I can't, gra- I can't take it from you. And like just that whole sequence. And to your point, Vince Vaughn, you know, Trent is obviously embarrassed that he's hanging out with Mike. Mike's embarrassing him, but he like, he doesn't like ditch on his buddy. Like he stays there. He tries to help him bet, but that whole thing. So, so yeah, how one doesn't realize they're at a hundred dollar minimum bet table is beyond me. However, uh, really, really tough. You know, the dealer's going to count it. You know, you don't hand it to him. I mean, come on. It seemingly they've been to Vegas before, so they know these things. And and even taking that Vegas thing to the next level, right? We're not in Kansas anymore. I'm a comedian. Do you uh, have anything smaller? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. But this happens to be a $100 minimum bet table. Perhaps you'd be more comfortable at one of our lower stakes tables. Stop under. Very good. Cocktails? Guy behind the guy. The scotch on the rocks. Please, any scotch will do. As long as it's not a blend, of course, uh, single malt, Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, perhaps, maybe a Glengow, any Glen. Scotch on the rocks. And then, and then, you know, he has to call his ex-girlfriend in the calling card. Man, to try to explain to a youngin what a calling card is, is a really difficult thing to do, by the way. But, um, you know, he interrupts Trent, ruins his night. And, and Trent, you know, he's a bit, you know, hey, it was, I just wanted you to be happy. 
That's all he cared about. Trent's hooking up with the girl in the back of the trailer and like he, he knocks on the door and, you know, he's like, I need to check my messages. And like, he doesn't go off on him. And it's interesting. Cause I think, I think in a lot of other ways, a, a buddy like that might be get really pissed off, you know? Yeah. Credit to Trent. <laughs> and then, but Trent, man, he's, he's like, this is Mikey. Like, I think he knows, like, this is how Mikey is. Like, I've obviously spent time with this guy. This, this isn't the first time he's done something like this. And that's, it's really believable. Like it's, there's little nuances of this movie. His reaction in a scene like that makes this movie even more likable than like the standard reaction of a buddy maybe losing his yeah, shit on his that, buddy, And it, it's you know? what makes this a story about friendship. It's just I don't remember when I was watching it back in the day. I don't remember this movie being as like it, it causes yeah, me anxiety agreed. when I watch. It. There's parts of you that really feel for Mikey. This guy's heartbroken. He misses his girlfriend. He's not doing well in L.A. He's he's trying to find his way. And then there's this other part of me that just wants to be like Sue, and you just want to kick this guy in the ass and be like, get the fuck off the mat, man. Like, That's what right. are you doing? Like, get it together. The the anxiety of this movie, I think, is one of its best yeah, things. Yeah, I agree. About it. I agree. And I, too, had forgotten about it a little bit. So where does Swingers rank for you on, like, the all-time Jason Zolan movie comedy list? What, what, what's on your list? Uh, it's up there. Um, and, you know, it's – it's. I was trying to think, it, you know, do I just call this a straight comedy? But it's it's definitely up there. Again, when someone asks you what your favorite film is, some f- criteria has to be the number of times that you've seen it. I've seen this mo- – I can't even count how many times I've seen this movie. But – we talked about Wedding Crashers. We talked about Old School. Old School was so immediately funny and for so long. You know, a lot of times you can't watch them over and over and over again. Old School, you absolutely could. You guys did a pod on Anchorman a while back. Anchorman, you know, that's one that kind of had the reverse effect. It was the first time you watch it, you're like, what the hell am I watching? And then it just gets better and better and better and better. <laughs> yep. um, you know, I had the Adam Sandler pack. Adam... Adam can be very, very annoying, but his movie, I've quoted Happy Gilmore, I, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, Spaceballs is a great one. Uh, anything with Brooks in there. Uh, and then Tommy Boy, too. Chris Farley exploded onto the scene with that movie. And I, I quote Tommy Boy quite often. And that job that I had back in the day when Paramount was our client, we we handled the movie uh, promotion and advertising for Tommy Boy. So I, I remember working on that campaign. And that was another little release that came along that we, we had no idea that that movie was going to be as as good as it was. But um, we did something about Mary back then. We did Kingpin. Uh, Tommy Boy was a good one, but I think for me, like you, you referenced Wedding Crashers earlier, I just want to I want to sh- give a little shout out to that movie. It's not my favorite movie, but like the opening fifteen minutes of that movie when they are crashing yeah. the different weddings, right? And it's it's him and Owen Wilson. You know the scene, right? It's like a montage, and like it's the music, and they're dancing, and they're at the Jewish wedding, and they're at the Catholic wedding, like, and they're like they're they're in different outfits, and like and and they cut that sequence while he's also like having sex with these different women. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like they show him like yes. throwing the women on the bed and then they go back to a wedding and then they're at the next woman. Like there's, it, it there's like this exuberance, this, this manic energy for like 12 minutes in the beginning of that movie. That's like, <laughs> I'm all in, like I'm all in on this movie. And I think that movie's too long and it runs out of gas. It's a hundred percent too long. Great opening. It reminds me too. Now that you say that, uh, I think that the opening, I don't even know how long. Let's call it 18 minutes of Super Troopers is absolutely fabulous. Uh, wow. Um, you know, again, the rest of the movie is, has got its issues. It's still incredibly funny. But that opening sequence, whoo-wee. Have you ever seen Cedar Rapids? I have not seen Cedar Rapids. With um, John C. Riley and um, Ed Helms from, from The Hangover? No. I think it came out in like 2011 or 2010. And it's this really – it's a it's a quirky little indie comedy – 
that was received really good reviews, but it just, it, it's, it's basically a movie about a bunch of people that are at a, at a, at a business conference and they all meet up and like they, they go to the same conference every year. It is damn funny. Cedar Rapids. I'm in. I know we're about to wrap up here, but there's one thing I wanted to reference here is that Doug Lehman, I thought this was a great story. So he obviously, as I mentioned earlier, he went on to direct the, the Born Identity movies with, with, uh, with Matt Damon. So this is what he says about life after swingers. I found myself moving to France to make Born Identity. On my first night there, this is 1999 or 2000, I am incredibly homesick. I was going to be there for like a year and I didn't know anybody. I feel like I'm in over my head. I'm staying at a hotel and I turn on the TV onto Canal Plus, which is the big movie channel. And there's a movie that's about to end that I'm like, I wonder what's going to be on next. And suddenly the Miramax logo comes up and, and it's our music from Swingers. It grounded me in a way that ultimately gave me the courage to make the Born Identity the way I wanted to make it. My whole career is sort of predicated on swingers. So what are the odds that that would happen? It's on TV that night at that moment. Very slim. Anywhere in the world, pretty slim. But those were the odds we faced every day on swingers. So that was its last gift to me. Crazy. I love that. Oh, man. I think, I think that's an amazing, amazing quote and an amazing story. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hear he's not the easiest filmmaker yeah. to deal with. I, I've never met Doug Lehman, so I'm not going to say anything about him, but his reputation precedes him. He's not supposed to be the easiest guy. Yeah. He got very upset about Roadhouse, as I mentioned. <laughs> but I think that's that's a pretty amazing moment. I hope that that's true exactly as he tells it, because uh, what a what an amazing bit of timing. What haven't we talked about, Jason, on Swingers? Any parting thoughts? What's on your mind? You mentioned the scene where they walk through the kitchen to get to the club. So one of the things that I think Mikey says to the bouncer in that scene before they walk through the kitchen is something to the effect of, hey, man, you look big. You've been lifting. And I... <laughs> Did not ever <laughs> compute that line, but in the let's quasi sequel to this movie made, uh, there's a very big moment where Favreau says the exact same thing to a bouncer. And it's just as Dustin Diamond walks into the club and he's like, did you just let Screech in the fucking club? And me and my buddies quote that movie. I, have you seen Made, first of all? I have not seen oh. Made. I know what movie you're talking about. It came out a couple years after Swingers. I know that movie. I've never seen yeah. it. I've never seen so it. So speaking of life, life after Swingers, it's, you know, it's fine. It it's you know, it's it's got the two of them and it's it's good for a couple laughs. But uh I just rewatching it, I was like, holy shit, it, that that is the line that he's paying homage to swingers. And I never even realized it. It's pretty smart and a little bit meta the way they referenced Tarantino and yeah. swingers. Cause you know, sometimes in movies like that, when you reference other movies that are not that long ago, yeah. it, it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work, you know? And like, and I thought it was really clever that they talked about reservoir dogs and they talked about how Tarantino likes to, you know, rob shots of yeah. Scorsese and other filmmakers. Right. And he's paying homage, but like, so they obviously referenced the, the opening, um, walk from Reservoir Dogs yes. and they reestablished that in Swingers when they're going out for the night, which was pretty funny. And then they they obviously did the, to your point, they did the shot of them entering that bar, but they go through the kitchen, they go up the stairs and they, they're they talking to the bus boys and yep. the people that are in the kitchen and they, they the camera's behind them. It's just like Goodfellas. Yes. It's, it, it's, it's, they're paying homage to Martin Scorsese and, but it works. It, it works really well in Swingers. Like I love, I think it's one of my favorite parts of that movie. Yeah, it really is. And uh, you know, the table's there. The only, the only other thing I was thinking through with this movie is a, there's a lot of Bud heavy, which is just a very interesting choice. Uh, I would, I would never have drank that even as a youngin. but um, the other thing was that's just if you're going out to a club and you have a reserve table, there's one when he does the dance, the swing dance um, at the end of the movie, 
they have like seven, eight Cosmos on the table. There's six buds. You know, it's like how much money was the tab for this night for these struggling actors? Like that's got to be a couple hundred dollars, which is a ton of money for, you know, someone who's who's poor and living on their own. It's I was just like, man, they, they drink a lot out. And my buddies and I would always pregame a little bit, try to save some money. So that was the only other of crazy uh, observation. He's like, it's on, dude. Yeah. It's so <laughs> he on. Smacks like, him. <laughs> he smacks him. Like Sue's trying to talk to that girl, but like Vince is more interested in, in, in uh, Mikey. Dancing with Heather Graham, so it's it's so great. My buddy and I was also give each other shit uh, at a table like that, where you know Vince is just totally calling Sue out. Like you know, we were together that day, and I don't remember you being gone long enough to make a call to somebody. And just blowing up his spot, I thought that was really fun. <laughs> he jammed him up pretty good, didn't he? <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> it's so good. Speaking of Goodfellas, by the way, I want to give my buddy Ruth a little shout out. Goodfellas is on the list. We're doing Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas is going to be the end of May Ooh. for this little pod. What do you think Ooh. about that? I like it. I like it. Yeah. I mean, those are some daring ones. To, to listen to Jason do Pulp, I mean, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit because that's a tough movie to do. You guys did a great job with it. But those big ones, those big ones freaked me out a little bit. I really wanted Major League, and I know you know that. I'm very excited for that one, though, too. Let's talk about that. So basically, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. We're, we're doing uh, Richard Donner's Lethal Weapon 2. Another great from one. 1989. I'm doing that in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about that. That's another newcomer. Um, I have three newcomers in a row this year, which I really like. I did that on purpose. I wanted to get some new folks on the show. I have some of my returning ones. They're coming back. Yep. But I, I, I wanted to get a couple of new faces. I got to tell you, man, I am really excited to talk about Lethal Weapon 2. That movie is the balls. I don't care that Mel Gibson is canceled. I know he's canceled. <laughs> we're going to do that episode and we're going to pretend that he's not canceled. And we're going to put ourselves back in, in, in Martin Riggs of 1989 because that movie is just awesome. So I can't wait to talk about that. My buddy Andrew Fryer is going to be on to talk about that. And then, to your point, in April, Jason Thompson's coming back. And we're going to do another movie from 1989. David S. Ward's Major League with Chuck Sheen and Tom Berenger and Wesley Snipes. Yo, bartender, Joe Boo needs a refill. Oh, man. You're a little bit disappointed that you're not on Major League. Talk about it. Part of the other reason that I brought Swingers up, um, other than it being fantastic, is there's a little bit of, you know, you are clearly a movie guy, and I don't want to say some ridiculous movie that makes me seem like I'm not that much of a movie guy. So Swingers classic. It's romantic. You know, it's, sure. a, it's a great story. I didn't think Major League was on the table. I mean – I, I don't know why, but man, talk about, I don't think there's a movie that I've seen more times than that movie. I could do it start to finish without even thinking about it line by line. It's just a great, I'm so, I'm a little disappointed that I'm not doing it, but that's not anybody's fault. I'm so happy that you're doing it at all. You're making me feel terrible now that you're not on Major League. <laughs> First of all, anything's on the table on this podcast. I mean, I've done Anchorman. I've done Anchorman and I've done Deliverance all in the same year. <laughs> That's true. This is true. That should tell you that like we will go after Goodfellas, but then we'll, we will also do Anchorman and Swingers. So, like I I love all movies. I just I just they just need to be good. And I can be a little bit snobby at times, but I just want them to be good as long as they're good. I could care less if it's a if it's a stupid comedy like Cedar Rapids yep. or if it's something a little bit more serious like Deliverance, but uh, or First Blood for that matter. But anyway, <laughs> Major League is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. We got to discuss. So, so are we doing Dazed and Confused, or are we going to do something else? What else could we do? You know, I'd really like to do Jurassic Park. Great, really? Yep, I love Jurassic Park. That's always there in uh, in my favorite movie conversation. Like legitimately, I- I've also seen it plenty of times. But I'd have to think through some other comedies. Um, I think Days and Confused is great, though. What a great choice. Jurassic is interesting. I, I remember reading that book, and I uh, 
I could not wait for Jurassic Park yeah. to come out after I had read that book, maybe like a year before then, Michael Crichton. So like I was, I was waiting. I was a little disappointed that they didn't do all the stuff that was in the book, yeah. but that's a good one. I read the book after the movie, so I didn't have the letdown, but obviously like most times uh, the book was better. I'm trying to figure out what age can a girl watch that movie and still get to sleep at night. So I really want to show it to my daughter at some point. It's a little violent at times, yeah, but I'm still trying to get her Goonies. Goonies is another one. Let's do Goonies. I love Goonies. I introduced Farrah's uh, daughter to Gremlins two nights oh. ago. No, no scared, right? That's more fun than anything. She did not get scared at all. She loved it. And, and she was laughing at all the right parts when they microwaved the, the, the gremlins and <laughs> they blew up in the microwave and the blender. I mean, all that was a little violent, but like there was nothing. There was it's no cartoon was no violence. It's, it's gooey. Listen, how did you like this? That you survived the experience? It was great. It's it's everything I thought it could be and more. You do a great job uh, setting things up, walking people through. It's uh and like you said, I forgot we were recording five minutes into it. One of the things all my guests do is they're going to text me the next day. You're going to text me tomorrow. And you're going to be like, we forgot to talk about this or <laughs> we forgot to talk about that. And then I will say it to myself too. Like I'll be walking my dogs tomorrow morning. And I'll be like, damn it. We didn't talk about this one thing. And then someone's going to call me out on it too and say, I can't believe you didn't talk about it. The other day, somebody sent me a note on LinkedIn, David Mosier. And he's like, he's like, I can't believe you didn't talk about the briefcase and Pulp Fiction. What are you doing? <laughs> It's implied. It's always he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I can give you like the uh, the lightning round of things that I had highlighted that we didn't get to. Um, But there's not a ton. Uh, The the whole, you know, um, you're this big bear with these claws and these fangs, that whole scene. I did that to my daughter when she was uh, playing basketball the other day. She was having a little bit of confidence problem. And I'm like, girl, you're like this big bear bear with these claws going against the other team. I gave her the whole spiel and uh, it didn't really help, but that's, that's totally fine. Uh, the music that they, they spent more licensing the music to this film than anything. And the music is absolutely incredible. That's so, my bad. We should have talked about the soundtrack. Really, really solid. So good. Well, the well, only well. other two things are at the very end of the movie. Uh, Mike is in an in and out t-shirt shout out to in and out. And then when he's, you know, counting the days in his head, when to call her, he pins the card with her number on it, and it's on December fourteenth, which is my birthday. That's and that's where we met at Mastros. That's where we met at Mastros, because only I will go to my clients on my birthday. It all comes back to twelve fourteen. <laughs> oh wait, wait. So what did you do at In and Out Burger? Give us, give us a minute on that. All what of it. Your job uh, you know, you you have to start. Everyone starts in the dining room, right? You're cleaning the tables, and then you work up levels. And every level has like a twenty five fifty cent raise. It's probably more now, but you start in the dining room. You quickly go to the cashier. That's level two. Level three is fries. You got to get your fries down. Level four is the drive-through. Probably one of the hardest things to do. Level five is the board where you're actually wrapping the burgers and then you cook. So it's like Louis Anderson from uh, Coming to America. Like soon I'll be on fries and then I'll be assistant manager. (laughs) And that's where the big bucks start rolling in. (laughs) Another good one. How long did you work there? I worked there for three years. I had a, I still have my 401k there. It was great. I have a, a slightly warm take for you that I don't think you're going to like. Okay. okay but I'm going to give it to you anyway before we wrap. I like this. I think In-N-Out Burger oh, is good, but I think it's slightly, slightly overrated. Okay. That's an East Coast guy talking for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not from here. You're from here, right? It's what you know. But I think Fat Burger's better. Oh, wow. Look at you. Fat Burger has a special place in my heart. A lot of the same guys that I watched this movie with when I was in college, we would reward ourselves on the baseball team if we won 
by going to Fat Burger. And we, you know, the jukebox was there playing playing all the hits and uh, Fat sure. Burger, Fat Fries. Yeah, yeah. There's a Fat Burger right across the street from my building. So I think that might be part of it. Amazing. It's just, it's, it's close. I know the guy, he recognizes me. I go there more than I probably should. But, you know, every once in a while, a good cheeseburger, Jason. That just gets the job done. It's what you need. It's the spot. Listen, man, this was a blast. Thank you so much for being on. It was, it was great to finally do this. I'm so sorry it took us so long. I promise you that the next episode will not take as long. It'll, it will not be 14 months. It'll be less. I'm just, uh, I'm touched to, to have the opportunity to do it again. But I'm feeling a little bit pressured on Major League. Like, I hope I don't let you down. Like, I really hope I, I, I play the right clips and reference the right things. And because that movie is, uh, it's treasure. Impossible. You could not disappoint me. I'm excited about the clips. I don't know what clips you're going to play in this. Uh, I already know. That's, I already that's made a fun little surprise. I'm not going to tell you. I want you to, I want you to experience it like everybody else for the first time. If it. I give it away, then it's, it's going to spoil it for you. But uh, it's perfect. But anyway, it's a lot of fun, man. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. And I think we're having dinner in a couple weeks. So we, we'll be able to uh, talk about the episode when we get together. You got it, man. Can't wait. All right, man. Be well. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks. We'll leave the weapon too with Andrew Fryer. Looking forward to that one. And until then, thank you as always for listening. And we'll talk soon. Thanks. King of the road. I know every engineer on every train. All of the children and all of their names. And every handout in every town. And every lock that ain't locked when no one's around. I sing trailers for sale or rent.